I want to start this morning by telling you a story about a boy named Johann. Johann lived in Germany in the 1700s, about 300 years ago, and he grew up in a big musical family. He had seven brothers and sisters, and he learned how to play the violin, uh, the organ, and he sang. He sang really well, and he did all of it really well. And he lived in a city in Germany called Eisenach, which is the same city where Martin Luther translated the Bible from Greek into English at the castle there. Now, he lived in that same city, and that means that he was sort of influenced heavily by the legacy of Martin Luther. In fact, Johann went to the same grammar school that Martin Luther did 200 years before him. And so as little musical Johann would have been reading through his Bible in in the Latin translation, which he would have learned at the same grammar school that, that Martin Luther went to, he would have seen when he came to Jude 24 and 25 in Latin, he would have seen the words soli, deo, and gloria, glory to God alone. Well, as Johann grew, he became really well known across the world as a brilliant musician for writing his own music. And everyone was amazed at his incredible musical skill. But Johann knew that whatever skills, whatever talent, whatever work ethic he had, it was given to him by God. And he wanted to make sure that that he always remembered that. He wanted to make sure that other people that read his music knew that too. And so at the bottom of all of his music, he would write three little letters. He would write S, D, and G. At the end of all of his pieces of music, which stands for, as you might guess, Soli Deo Gloria. And so as people would read through his music, he wouldn't want them to think about how awesome he was. He wanted them to think about how awesome God is. And even to this day, Johann's musical ideas and his skill still leave people in awe some 300 years later. And you might have actually heard of this boy, Johann. His full name is Johann Sebastian Bach. He's one of the most important, one of the most well-known musicians of all time. But as uniquely skilled and as uniquely gifted as Johann Sebastian Bach was, he knew that all glory belongs to God and that God's glory connects with all of life. Recently, 32% of young Christian adults said that their most pressing issue for them is to find a way that they could follow Jesus that connects with the world that they live in. Well, I think this doctrine of soli deo gloria can help us with that. It'll help us to recognize, rejoice in, and live for the glory of God alone in all of life. Now, there are many texts that we can see this idea, soli deo gloria. We can see it all over the Bible, but where we're going to be this morning is in Jude. Jude 24 and 25. If you haven't turned there yet, please go ahead and do that. I want to encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you so you can see what I'm reading from, what I'm preaching from. It's, Jude is a small little book. If you turn all the way to the end of the Bible, you'll see Revelation. The book right before that is Jude. It's just one chapter, so if you blink, you might miss it. As you're turning there, let me just set the stage for us real quick. Soli Deo Gloria, as we said, is that Latin phrase that means to God alone be the glory. And I'm sure you know by this point in the service 
that today is the day that we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And central to the Reformation were five points of doctrine that came out of the Reformation, and we call them the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Grazia, Sola Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And we're celebrating this morning, we're celebrating because in many ways the Reformation was a recovery of the good news of the gospel itself. I'm, I'm personally celebrating, I got some fancy Martin Luther socks on, I don't know if you can see it. My boy James got these for me while he was in Germany, it says, here I stand, I can do no other. They're my, my Martin Luther socks. But the reason we're celebrating is we're not glorifying the reformers, we're, we're celebrating the fact that the gospel was recovered out of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It had been muddled up, it had been lost. And Soli Deo Gloria this morning is a fitting way to end this Sola series, because it's the one Sola that sort of ties together. It's like the glue that binds all the other Solas together. Our big idea that we're going to be seeing today from Jude 24 and 25 is this. We should joyfully glorify God alone for salvation. God gets 100% of the credit, and that should bring us great joy. That's what Soli Deo Glory is about. Joyfully glorify God alone for salvation. Are you with me? You can answer, are you with me? All right. Before we begin, I want to take a moment just... All of us in our seats pray silently for ourselves, for our family around us, for any guests that are here this morning, that we would be able to quiet our minds and that we would remove any distractions, that God would help us behold his glory through his word. Why don't you go ahead and do that silently now? Father, give us eyes to joyfully behold your glory in your word this morning. Amen. Jude, the man who wrote this letter, it was a half-brother of Jesus. And if you look up at verse 2, if you've got your Bible in front of there, Jude verse 2, you can see that he wrote this letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This short letter was written to Christians, to the church to encourage them to persevere against false teaching and to contend for the faith. You can see that in verse 3 if you've got it there. And in the main body of the letter, Jude reminds his audience of some Old Testament history. So remember these wicked people that were judged for their evil. And then he connects that with the false teachers that are in this church. He's saying that the same wrath that befell those wicked people is going to befall those false teachers. The church has been troubled by false teaching, and he wants to make sure that they stand firm, that they are kept in the faith. He calls his audience to steadfastly keep themselves in the love of God as they await Christ Jesus. They await the mercy of Jesus Christ that will lead them to eternal life. And he ends his letter with a doxology. And this is our sermon text this morning. It says in Jude 24 and 25, I hope you have it there before you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, 
and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. As I mentioned, this verse is a, is a doxology. If you've got your, your worship guide, there's a note on the back of there that explains what a doxology is, but suffice it to say for us right now that a doxology is really just a, it's a brief but deep burst or explosion of praise to God. In the first half of this doxology of Jude, he lays out some reasons to praise God. And then in the second half, he engages in the praise of God. He lays out why God ought to be praised and worshipped. And then he actually engages in the worship. He lays, he lays out, so let, me, let me say it a different way. His theology drives his doxology. Do you see that in the text? Jude uses the word glory in two different ways, just here in these two verses. In verse 24, it's, it's his glory. It's something that God already has. And then in verse 25, Jude gives glory to God. So thinking of the glory of God causes him to glory in God. And so in our time together, we're going to do th- three things, hopefully. We're going to think about what God's glory is. We're going to see how God reveals his glory. And then we're going to think about how we can glorify God. So to follow after Jude's example, let's first consider God's glory. If we're going to understand why it is that God alone gets the glory for our salvation, which is part of our big idea, first we need to understand what God's glory is. And I believe the best place to start is in Exodus. Exodus chapters 33 and 34. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Those chapters deal with Moses as he's on Mount Sinai. And if you, if you know your biblical history, you'll know that at this point in the text, Moses has already seen the glory of God. He's seen it in a burning bush. He's seen the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. He's seen how God has delivered on his promise to redeem Israel out of slavery to Egypt. He's seen the glory of God in a pillar of fire, pillars of cloud, bright lights, even as a cloud that's sitting there on Mount Sinai for a week. In fact, he's even met with God to receive the Ten Commandments at this point. And so at this point in Moses' life, he's no stranger to the glory of God. I think that's a fair thing to say. Now, Exodus 33, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God and begging him for his presence to remain with his people. And God promises his presence. Then Exodus 33, verse 18 says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, that is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover over you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We've already talked about how Moses has seen a lot of God's glory. And yet, here he is asking to see God's glory. So, I mean, one thing we can notice right off the bat is whatever God's glory is, it's addictive. 
The flashes of God's glory that Moses has seen in his life have only made him hunger for more. He has a longing. He's got a yearning, a a soul hunger to see more of God's glory. Augustine captured this idea well, this idea of the addictiveness of God's glory in this quote. He said, quote, because the face of God is so lovely, my brothers and sisters, so beautiful, once you have seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire. We shall always be hungry, and we shall always have our fill. I would ask you, have you felt that hunger in your soul? Maybe it's you've seen a beautiful sunset, or you've heard your children laughing in the other room. Or maybe you've heard a beautiful piece of box music. Maybe you've just walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, but... Maybe you're not even Christian, right? But you're standing there and you're haunted by the idea that there is something more to life than what we can see and feel and taste and measure. You might describe it as a a homesickness that you can't explain. I want to suggest that what you've glimpsed is the glory of God. Moses saw God's glory in very clear ways, and that's why he wanted more. He didn't want to see the clouds and the fire and the light. He wanted to see God himself. This glory is not enough for me. He wasn't satisfied with the shadows of God's glory. He wanted the substance of God's glory. The fullness of all the perfections of God. But God told Moses he couldn't handle the full glory of God. He says he can't reveal his full glory because it's going to melt Moses' face off like the guy at the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But this is what I can do. This is what I can do, Moses. I'll hide you in a rock. And I'll pass before you, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll uncover you, and you can see the the trailing glory. You can see my hind parts. And I will proclaim my name. And so now it's in Exodus 34, 5 to 8. It says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Normally when we we think about this event, this Moses asking to see God's glory, I think we stop at the fact that he's hidden in the rock and he gets a a glimpse of the trailing physical created glory of of God. But what follows that is no less a demonstration of what God's glory is. He proclaims his name, his character, by his speech. God speaks, and in speaking, he reveals himself to Moses. He says, my glory is who I am, and this is who I am. I'm merciful, gracious, patient, loving, and faithful, forgiving, and just. So the perfections of all of God's attributes are his glory. And so it would seem that before anything else, what God's glory is, is his intrinsic, mind-blowingly beautiful perfection. God's glory is his, this is part of his nature, and it's mind-blowingly beautiful, his perfection. Mind-blowing. God is so far beyond us that there's really no way of explaining or even trying to explain faithfully 
fully the glory of God. As Christians, we just have to be comfortable with the fact that there is mystery in the person of God. There is much that we do not know about God. But at the same time, friends, we're not left to guess about who God is because he takes the initiative to reveal his glory to us, his character, his name, himself to us. The secret things of the Lord belong to our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. It's not possible to fully know God, but it is entirely possible to truly know God. Because he he manifests, he displays, he demonstrates his glory for us. We don't have to guess. We can perceive and we can know him through his glory. And, And he does that in a few different ways. He glorifies himself, he manifests, he demonstrates his glory in a few different ways. So let's, let's think about how God reveals his glory. First, God reveals his glory through creation. Um, he does it through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Romans, that's Psalm 19, and then Romans 1 says the invisible attributes can be known through nature. Angels, angels are created beings that testify to the glory of God. Humans, humanity is one of the ways that God reveals his glory. We are crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 says. But he also, he also reveals his glory in more distinct, more distinct ways. Through created clouds and pillars of fire and bright light, like we, like we read about in the Old Testament. Those, those are the unique markers that come with God's special presence, And it seems that that special presence of God is what Jude is talking about here. It seems that God is able to present us blameless, Jude says, before this glory of God. Do you see that in verse 24? And a a quick follow-up question. Do you understand the gravity of that statement? Do you understand the gravity of the fact that God says he, he is able to keep us, preserve us, and present us blameless before his glory with great joy? Remember, Moses, one of the most central figures in the Bible, God specially chose him to work through him. He asked to see God's glory. What's God say? You're not going to survive it. He just gets a passing glimpse. Elijah, one of the most famous prophets of Israel, he, after just having called down fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal, is running away now. He's afraid for his life. And God comes to him to restore his courage, to restore his strength. But Elijah couldn't receive the full glory. He just got a whisper. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of being presented before the glory of God, and he was terrified because he was immediately aware of his own sinfulness. And yet here, Jude says that we can be presented blameless before the glory of God. How is this possible? How how can these Christians that Jude wrote to and us, by extension, be presented blameless before God's glory? It's holy and righteous. How is this possible? If this doesn't shock you, if this doesn't surprise you, if this doesn't drive you to awe, then it hasn't sunk in yet. Did it sink in yet? I don't think you got it yet. Let me keep going. In Leviticus, the priest of Israel would present a sin offering before the presence of the glory of God with great fear, and we are presented before the the glory of God with great joy. Moses was to be shielded from the presence of God's glory, and we were presented before it blameless. 
Elijah gets a whisper of God's glory. We get a shout of God's glory. Isaiah was terrified, and yet we boldly are presented before his glory. I ask you again, how, how is this possible? I hear somebody whispering, Jesus, that's the right answer. (laughs) We need to push further into this idea of God's glory, though. You don't have to whisper either, by the way. You can say it out loud. God doesn't only reveal his glory through creation. He doesn't just do it through nature, through people, through clouds, and through lights. He also reveals his glory through his words. Remember, Moses wants to see God's glory, and God declares, he speaks, he says his name. He declares his attributes. He revealed that he's merciful and gracious and just. Those attributes of God are his glory, and he revealed his glory to Moses by his word. He says, this is my glory, this is who I am. But there's another way, though, that God manifests, demonstrates his glory through his deeds. God manifests his glory through his deeds. And here's, here, my friends, is how we're starting to close in on what soli deo gloria means. God doesn't just reveal his glory through nature and clouds and pillars of light. Even by just his word, he also demonstrates his glory for us through his actions, through his deeds. For example, think of Israel being redeemed out of Egypt. When he brought Israel to salvation, he was showing his glory. When he was showing judgment against Egypt, he was revealing his glory. So in that action of redemption, God showed both his mercy towards Israel and his wrath, his judgment, his righteousness towards Egypt. You see, God doesn't just say that he's righteous and merciful and just. He shows it. You remember a couple months ago, we had that solar eclipse that swept across the nation. And what's the one thing they told you over and over again on the news when they were talking about the eclipse? Don't look at it. Don't look at it because it's going to ruin your eyes. And so in order to see this eclipse... You had to either get some super thick shades that you can buy on Amazon, or you can create your own little, your own little box, and that's what my, my wife and daughter and I did. We, we got a cereal box, and we put a little, cut a hole and put some tinfoil on it, poked a hole in it and cut a hole on the other side, and what you do is you stand with your back with the sun behind you, it reflects through the pinhole that you made in the tinfoil, and you can see through the other side of the box the eclipse. You're not looking at the eclipse, you're looking at a reflection of the eclipse. And this is how you can see it without burning your eyes. This is not a perfect illustration, but Jesus is like the box that we use to see the eclipse. Or as one Puritan author put it, he is the basin of water that reflects the light of the sun. Jesus has a unique personal glory because he's, he's fully God and he's fully man. So in Christ alone, the word made flesh, we can finally behold God's glory and be saved rather than be destroyed. So if you've felt that hunger in your soul that you can't explain that we talked about earlier, pray and ask God right now in your seat where you're at. You don't have to walk an aisle. Pray and ask God right now that he would give you eyes of faith to see the beautiful glory of God in Jesus Christ. Through his words, God declares himself to be loving, merciful, and just, and through his deeds, God demonstrates his glory. My question is, where is the glory of God demonstrated at its fullest? 
In what event do we see God's love and his righteousness and his patience and his mercy and his wrath all being demonstrated at the same time? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were justified and saved from the righteous wrath of God because it was poured out on Jesus who endured it willingly and lovingly on our behalf. I think this is why Luther can rightly say that if anyone wants to know the great glory of God, they must see him through the humility of the cross. Because it's there at the cross that Jesus takes on the righteous justice of God in our place because of the love of God. It is the glory of God to judge evil, and it is the glory of God to save his people. And at the cross, we see them both on full display on a cosmic level. And so for us, on this side of the cross, when we want to see the glory of God, we look to the gospel. This is, this is why our worship, as Christians, is driven by the word of God, which displays the deeds of God, put on display in Christ's glorious, eternal life-securing, substitutionary atonement for our blame, which is now how we can boldly approach the glorious throne of grace this morning, and how one day we will be presented blameless before his glory. Our worship, dear brothers and sisters, is not searching for the glory of God in lights or in pillars of cloud or even pillars of fire. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to worship, look for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do here on every Sunday morning. Hopefully you've noticed that. Over the next two Sundays, there's going to be a a united Sunday school class in the Sunday school class hour over there in the education center, 9 o'clock. If you're interested in congregational worship, we're going to spend two weeks just talking about that, that idea alone. But back to the point, God deserves 100% of the credit for our salvation because he alone is our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So says Jude. Jude says it in verse 25. Uh, let Let me remind you of the other solas again. Salvation is by grace alone. It is a freely given gift from God that none of us deserved or were owed. It is by, it is through faith alone. We don't contribute anything to earn salvation, and even the faith that we put in Christ is a gift from God so that we cannot boast about it. And salvation is in Christ alone, who is the very image of the invisible God and the one mediator between God and man. And we take all of this on the authority of God's word, scripture alone. And so really, all of those solos that we've been talking about all this month are culminated, and they sort of work together in the glory of God. As a, as a whole, as all these souls work together, they ensure that God alone gets the glory for our salvation. God gets 100% of the credit from, from saving us to preserving us to keeping us from stumbling into sin, as Jude says. It's all from God. He alone is the one who calls us. Look at verse 1 of Jude. He has called us and kept us for Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 2. God is the one who calls. He initiates the relationship. And he calls us because he loves us. And he loves us because we are in his beloved son. If you were a Christian, it's because God the Father called you. 
The Holy Spirit brought you from death into life, and the Son is keeping you. From the beginning to the end, your salvation is a work of God alone. In fact, Jude 25 says it's before all time God is glorified, so even before the beginning of time, God gets the glory for our salvation as well. I'm going to ask you a question. Now, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. You don't have to vocalize in this particular question, but I'm going to ask you this. Does this bother you? Does it bother you that God seems so self-centered? Does this rub you the wrong way? It's a question that comes up relatively often. Uh, Why does God seem so self-centered? So if you're asking this question, you don't have to be ashamed. But I want you to look back at the text. Draw your attention back to the text of Jude. Look at verse 24 and notice the intricate relationship between God's glory and your joy. I want to suggest that if God is the most beautiful, the most satisfying being that ever existed, he would be selfish if he did not glorify himself, because we would be missing out on the joy of knowing God as our Savior in Jesus Christ. God takes his glory seriously, and that should actually bring us, if we know Jesus, it should bring us great joy. You see, the consistent message of the Bible is that God alone calls us, saves us, perseveres us, and presents us before his glory. Psalm 115 says it like this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get mixed up. Sometimes I'm not really thinking about solely Deo Gloria, I'm more thinking about mostly Deo Gloria. How about you? There's, There's a temptation There's a temptation to look down at others because I I think that something in me has caused God to love me more than he's loved other people. Listen, it's not our our humility. It's not our intellect. It's not our good works that save us. As one man said, well, Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. I believe this is one of the most humbling things doctrines that we can find. And yet, God involves us in this. He, he glorifies himself through us. He involves us. Let's think, let's think about this. This is, all, this is our third point. How can we glorify God? I want to suggest, based on what we've already seen, that God glorifies himself when he takes sinful rebels, like yourselves, like myself, and he takes out their heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, and brings them to life. In order that, we can see God's glory, and we can know and how, how beautiful and glorious he is, and then we can turn around and testify to that fact. In verse 25 of Jude, glory is used in a different way, as I, as I talked about before. 24, he says, glory is something God has. It's his glory. In verse 25, it says he's ascribing or crediting glory to God. He says, glory be to God. And so when we recognize, when we see God's beautiful glory and we rejoice in it, we're glorifying him. Now, remember, God is already 100% glorious in and of himself. So we're not adding anything to his glory. He's not dependent on us to glorify him as if he needs us. But in the act of recognizing his glory and rejoicing in it, we're returning glory back to God. So in this sense, to glorify something simply means to enjoy it. To enjoy it and then tell everyone else how good it is. And 
We all do this continually. We were made to do this. If you find a brand new bag of like cheap, delicious potato chips, you're going to tell somebody about it, right? Man, you can't believe the deal I got on these chips. Or if you see a good movie, you see a Netflix documentary, the first thing, your first reaction is, man, I got to share this. I have to tell somebody about this. We're made to do this. God glorifies himself through his, through his words and through his deeds. And I don't want to suggest that we do the same. I think that we are able to glorify God through our words. And that's, that's what we do on a Sunday morning when we're worshiping together, right? We glorify God with, with songs that rightly portray his character. We have sermons that declare the character and nature of God. But we know that uh, worship doesn't only happen on Sunday mornings. Uh, worship is an all-of-life thing, so says Romans 12. We don't just glorify God when we're gathered together or when we sing songs or when we say true things about God. We also glorify God through our deeds. Jesus put it like this. He said, let our lights shine before others so that they may see our good works, our deeds, and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So we glorify God through our words and through our deeds, declaration and demonstration, sharing the love of God in Christ and then showing it as well. And this shouldn't be surprising, right? We're made in the image of God. He reveals his glory in these ways and we, re- we return it back to him in those same ways. Well, let's close up with just a few implications of the fact that we should joyfully glorify God alone for salvation. We might not like this, but the first thing that we've got to know is that salvation is not all about us. One of the most encouraging things I can tell you this morning is that it's not about you. Take a breath. You must decrease. He must increase. This is a great anxiety reliever. It's not on your shoulders. If you could have lost your salvation, you would have done it. God is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glory blameless. This is not about you, but he does include us in it. So we, ha- we receive this salvation, so it has to do with us, to be sure. But ultimately, we've got to see that the, the glory of God is, is the focus of salvation. Spurgeon, says, Spurgeon said this. I've got to get a Spurgeon quote. He said, I learned when I was a boy that the chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I hear now, according to the new theology, that the chief end of God is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. But this is the turning of things upside down. That was the 1800s when Spurgeon said that. I don't think he would believe the upside down that we live in. It's an age of narcissism, of self-absorption, of self-obsession, of entitlement. And so this is a, a helpful reminder to reorient ourselves away from our own glory and towards God's. After all, God's glory is the only true glory that there is. Everything else is vainglory. It's, it's vanity. And it's no small sin to engage in that vainglory. Herod found that out. Like Bach knew, whatever gift that we've got, whether it's salvation or a talent or a skill, a work ethic, it comes from God. 
and it's meant to be used for the good of others and for the glory of God. And that brings up a, a, second, a second concluding note. Uh, Bach, whenever he would write music, he would put SDG on it, whether it was written for the church to be used in worship, or whether it was used to be outside of the church. Um, one of the great benefits, I believe, of the Reformation was the, the tearing down of that supposed sacred and secular divide. It used to be that you had holy people like priests who would do transcendent and glorious things for God, and then you had the, the other people, the rest of us, that would do mundane chores like milking cows and making candlesticks. But during the Reformation, this, this, this was sort of obliterated. Because every Christian, once they got into the Word, they saw this, every Christian is expected to bring glory to God wherever they find themselves. Paul puts it this way, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Even the most basic things like eating and drinking can be done for the glory of God. So you better believe that there are ways that we can act in our our jobs, our vocations, our callings, in ways that will bring glory to God. So whether you're a student, uh, an electrician, a rocket scientist, a stay-at-home mother, a nurse, you can connect your faith, you can connect your faith to your calling in life by loving those people that you serve who are made in God's image and living in a way that adorns the truth of the gospel. Because you recognize that you're just a small part of a much bigger picture that God is painting. Now, there's more to it than just putting a little Jesus fish on your business card. We recognize that, right? Acting as a Christian in the world means more than that. The, The work that God has called you to is to be done with a sense of devotion, and it's done in a sense of worship, even things that people don't see. In fact, I might say that even in the things that people don't see is where God might be glorified more often than not. Do whatever it is that you think seems unglorious, do it well. And don't do it because other people are going to see you and glorify you. Do it because God sees you and he sees that. And you're bringing glory to him. How does the fact that God alone achieves salvation, how does that influence? How does that influence how you glorify him with your life? It might be a good conversation today over lunch. Uh, If you're going out after lunch, it might be a great topic of conversation. Maybe just ask your friends, ask your family. Say, let's think about with the specific place that God has put me, how is it that I can bring him glory in ways that others can't? You don't have to be one of the greatest musical minds of all time, like Bach. You don't have to be the quarterback who won the Super Bowl to bring glory to God. You don't have to win an Oscar to bring glory to God. Now, I would, I would imagine that some of you here this morning might become missionaries. I think that's fantastic. If you feel that tug in your life to spread the glory of God because you see it as beautiful and you want others to see it too, if you feel that tug this morning, that is fantastic. Find an elder. Come talk to me after the service. I will gladly point you to one so that they can work through you with that. But we all need to know that we can glorify God wherever it is that he has called us. Wherever he puts us, we can bring glory to God. Because in the end, God will be glorified, either as judge 
as we see about in the body of Jude, the main part of his letter, or through salvation, which we see in the last two verses of Jude. If you want to know him as Savior and not as judge, and if you've seen Jesus this morning with with fresh eyes of faith, or even if you want to see him, come and talk after the service. I would be glad to talk to you. I'll be up front, I'm sure. Josh will be at the back. Find somebody to talk to about it. One last note. Did you know that 2 Corinthians 8 says that churches are the glory of Christ? How does that strike you? How often have you looked around at other churches and thought that you clearly recognized God's glory there? I'm not talking about smokes and lights. If you're looking for the right things, if you're looking for characteristics of godliness lovingly being displayed in the lives of those Christians out of the adoration of Christ, then I think you've seen the glory of God. I've sat in on some of your, some of your membership interviews. Uh, I've spoken with some of you even this week at the Harvest Festival, hearing your, your stories of how God has brought you to himself. Each of us has been saved in very different ways. Some of us have been saved out of serious self-imploding sin and destruction, and others have what we might call just boring testimonies. But the path, the path that God has laid before each and every one of us to bring us to himself is nothing less than a miracle. And it's glorious. All of our stories act like small, broken fragments of a beautiful mosaic that God has been putting together and creating to bring himself glory before the beginning of time. And he's included us in this. The brightness of God's glory is the glow of our joy. One day we won't even need the sun, though, because the brightness of his glory will be our light. Are you longing for that day? Keep in the love of God as he keeps you from stumbling. Before we stand together, let's stand. If you've got your Bible out, I want to read this together. If you've got your Bible, Jude 24 and 25, it's not on the slides, you've got to have your Bible. I mentioned before that all we need in worship, go ahead and stand. All we need in worship is the word of God opened up in the midst of God's people. And so let's, let's, see, let's say these true things about God. And let's glorify God as we say it. Read with me, Jude 24 and 25. From the ESV, it reads... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.